Hello there, welcome to series six of the Hey Festival podcast, where we're sharing highlights from recent festival events, along with backstage conversations with some of the world's greatest writers and thinkers on their personal interests and influences. Today, I'm joined by neurologist Susanna O'Sullivan, writer of The Sleeping Beauties and specialist on psychosomatic disorders. We start with a section of her onstage event talking to Oliver Bolch before her and I caught up for a chat about storytelling and her other interests outside of work. So a psychosomatic condition is a psychological thing that produces a physical change. Unfortunately, though, we've got a really simplistic view of what that means. It must, you know, psychology means to a lot of people that someone is mad or anxious or depressed or it means something bigger to scientists working in that field. But essentially, it's a physical change that is happening in the absence of disease. Could, uh, um, could you give the example of Tara, the, mm. the, the teacher, yeah. to explain that dynamic, how yeah. the two relate? So this, Tara is a young patient of mine who um, basically, at, uh, uh, I saw her after she had collapsed, but the fundamental beginning of her problem was that she got a back pain, right? So back pain's a pretty common thing. Tara's back pain was particularly bad, and she really struggled to function with it. She had um, the usual treatment, things like physiotherapy, didn't make her better. Uh, she had a scan, which showed she had a slight displaced disc in her back, which caused her to be doubly concerned about her back pain. So now she's a young woman, not used to being unwell, has back pain, and she's been told she possibly has a slipped disc. She's reassured about that. She doesn't feel reassured. So what happened to Tara is that... As the back pain got worse, she began to notice tingling and numbness and um, altered sensation in her legs. She then started noticing that her legs weren't working properly, and she became very concerned that this slipped disc in her back was pressing on her spinal cord and that that spinal was causing her to lose the power in her legs. And this sort of gradually progressed over time until she couldn't walk at all, at which point she collapsed and had essentially what was a faint which is what led her to my door. Now, the important thing to know about something like a psychosomatic disorder that causes weakness in your legs is it's quite easy for a neurologist to diagnose. I think a lot of people think we diagnose these things because Tara comes in the door and she looks frightened and she's a young woman and she has an anxious disposition and her scan doesn't show anything to explain her symptoms and therefore I say, oh, it's psychosomatic. That's not how it is. Clinical signs and symptoms or how doctors make diagnoses. The nervous system is arranged in a really um, complicated way, so that if you get a, a spinal cord lesion, for example, you get a very specific pattern of weakness in your legs, but if you get a brain lesion, you get a different pattern of weakness. So the nervous system is organized in such a way that patterns of disability indicate to neurologists where the problem is coming from. Tara's pattern of disability was anatomically impossible. It couldn't be explained by her spinal cord problem. It couldn't be explained by a brain disease. Also, there was a big difference between how weak she was and what we call objective findings. So an objective finding means your reflexes that aren't affected by anything you do. They're just, um, they're separate. So I could tell immediately that she had what we call a psychosomatic disorder. And um, 
I don't know whether I should at this point explain how I think that came about. Would that be appropriate at this point? Or you can, where, where you can so, say whatever you like. You can talk about shopping again. Okay. So, uh, so basically, just so this was a psychosomatic disorder, and she was referred to a new. Uh, so this disc in her spine couldn't possibly explain why her legs were paralysed because it wasn't anywhere near the nerves that went to her legs. That was all in her imagination. So she knew there was a disc out of place. And you know, it's a little bit like if, if you think you've got, um, you know, a piece of glass has got into your shoe or something, your imagination runs riot with like, I can't possibly put any weight on this, but then you take your shoe off and discover you were mistaken. It was just something harmless was in your shoe. Suddenly you can walk again. So your imagination can produce incredibly vivid things. So. Her, the disc displaced in her back was not anywhere near her spinal cord, but that didn't change the fact that she knew it was there, and it terrified her. So every time she moved, every time she coughed, she thought, oh, I think I feel something moving in my back. And she had this vivid picture in her mind of this slip disc slowly edging towards her nerves and eventually producing you know, a major problem for her. What that did was it focused her attention on her legs. Now, most of us, when you're fit and well, you don't think about your legs. They just do what they do. You never have cause to think about them until you develop a medical problem or you begin getting a bit older. And then suddenly you can't rely on them quite so much. And the minute you pay attention to your body in that way, automatic things stop being automatic. So we normally walk just automatically, but if somebody, if you, or actually I often explain it with football players. So football players can often take penalties without any problem during practice, but then you put them, you know, in, the, in front of the huge audience in a stadium and ask them to take the same penalty. The focus of attention on their movements changes the whole automatic quality of their movements, and that stops them being able to take a penalty under scrutiny. The same thing, um, for example, is... Some men, I believe, cannot urinate in a public urinal. You know, the, the, so I'm picking on male examples because very often women get a bit hammered when we're talking, having this discussion. But, you know, the, the scrutiny in a public urinal, I understand, can sometimes call, cause shy bladder so people can't enter the bladder. So the scrutiny you play to, pay to your body changes the quality of your movements and your ability to do things. And that's what happened to Tara. You know, she started paying attention to her legs. Our bodies are a mess of white noise. So at any point in time, there's all sorts of tinglings and numbnesses available for you to feel, but your brain knows they're not important, so it dismisses them. But if someone says to you, there's a contagious illness going around this room, and these, the signs are a numb backside or something, you'll suddenly feel that you weren't thinking about your chair, but you're thinking about it now because I mentioned it. And that's what happens to Tara, is she's like, oh, do my legs feel normal? Is that normal? I'm not sure if that's normal. And then she starts trying to walk, and suddenly walking doesn't feel normal. And then what happens is a looping effect. If, you're not, if you think you're not walking normally, you probably start walking a little strangely, and that puts strain on different muscles, and now you're, put, now you're making your back pain worse. So it's the attention you pay to your body and the way you change your movements to accommodate pain and the attention you're paying to your body can change the quality of your walking and your ability to do things. So literally, Tara had thought herself into this situation by this vivid imagery of this, this um, disc pressing on her spinal cord, the fear and attention that she paid to her, her body, 
and then the cycle of fear and avoidance. The more frightened she was to move, the less she moved. The less she moved, the more deconditioned her body became and the less able she was to move. And then over a period of months, she kind of, th just through fear, deconditioning and um, avoidance, she found herself in a situation where she couldn't walk. Now, I would call that a psychosomatic condition because she had back pain, that was a physical problem, nothing to do with psychology at all. And she had a minor slip disc, that was a physical problem, nothing to do with psychology. But the thing that led to her, her um, inability to walk was how she reacted to that back pain and how that back pain affected her behavior and the way she thought about her body. And that's a slightly different interpretation of psychosomatic conditions than the one a lot of people will have, the more pejorative version. So the more pejorative version is that everything is Freudian. So psychosomatic means that something hopefully traumatic like abuse or something horrible must have happened to you in your childhood. Or So a hundred years ago, Freud postulated that all these conditions were due to repressed trauma, particularly sexual abuse. So you're abused, you repress it, and it comes out as a physical symptom. Um, when Tara first heard psychosomatic, she understood that that was what she was being told, that she had a traumatic episode in her life, and she was saying to people, nothing traumatic has ever happened to me, it's just my back pain. Nothing traumatic has happened. Whereas I'm saying psychosomatic is a broader range of illnesses than that. It's not just about life stresses, trauma, abuse, horrible things happening to you. Sometimes it's about things like attention, and awareness and how you respond to injury. Because psychology is not just about stress and abuse, etc. Psychology is about attention, awareness, memory, and any, anything that alters these things can interrupt the physiology and, and normal movement sensation, sensations of body and produce a psychosomatic condition. So the point being, and I'm literally going to wind up the, the, this very long answer. The point being, don't think, when I say psychosomatic, don't think she's saying it's all due to stress. Don't think she's saying it's all because my marriage is rubbish or I hate my job. Sometimes when I say psychosomatic, I actually am referring to other things, like the attention you pay to your body, the way you respond to injury. So psychosomatic is a broad range of conditions that has a lot of ways of presenting, and it's not all about life stresses. You can watch or listen to the full event with Suzanne by signing up to our Hey Player at heyfestival.org forward slash heyplayer. After her event, I caught up with Suzanne for a chat about her dreams and influences. A lot of people that I know who've gone into kind of medical um, careers know from a really early age that that is kind of their vocation. Is that the same for you? 100% uh, not. Um, I don't want to like destroy anyone's kind of illusions or anything, but really I went to quite an ordinary school um, and I was sort of, by which I mean there weren't lots of people didn't go to university and it wasn't that sort of school. And uh, you know, I was quite creative and I actually wanted to be a writer when I was in school, but I came from that sort of practical family who say, well, I mean, you know, what job does a writer do? Who pays them? How are they going to pay their mortgage? So I was really sort of funneled into a more academic career by the practicalities of life in the time that I went to university. So I was good at science and I became a doctor. And I know, I, th I feel like I'm supposed to say that I wanted to help people and things like that. <laughs> Truthfully, that, you know, that wasn't my motivation. I was looking for a practical career where I knew what I was at the end of it. And the, but I'm fortunate that, you know, medicine is, is a kind of job that 
you know, there's a role, there's a place in it for everyone. Whether you like people, you don't like people, you know, whether you're uh, good with your hands or you just want to be in a lab all the time. So, you know, I, I'm very happy I did medicine, but I would be lying if I said I was lying in bed as a teenager dreaming of it. But it was a, just a very fortunate push for my parents. No, it's refreshing, actually. <laughs> um, can you think of any kind of hobbies you had as a kid then around that age that you might have felt like were a bit of a waste of time or... Um, I don't think, I was a hugely active kid who played tons of sports, read loads of books, did um, pretty much, you know, I was fortunate. I came from that generation where your parents didn't get to go to university or they didn't get to go to the sort of tennis club or the things that sort of more fortunate generations get to go to, but they worked very hard to give me that. So I was the person who was lucky enough to play sports and do the ballet lessons and reading of the books. And I think that's none of it was a waste of time because, you know, eventually I did end up in a more creative place, you know, and I think would I ever have been able to go from being a neurologist to a neurologist plus a writer if I didn't have that good fortune when I was younger where I got to do all these sort of really varied things and really creative things. And I, I, it's never a waste of time. Do you, do you feel like, because that's quite a, a leap actually when you're coming out of kind of straight medicine and finding that link to kind of creativity mm. and what, what kind of made you bridge or head in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to write a book when I was about nine years old and then basically medicine got completely in the way and when I was in my 30s, like a good 20 odd years later, I suddenly thought I'd been dreaming for 20 years of writing a book and, um, but I'd never actually written even one word. Mm. And I just thought, stop dreaming about it and do it or just stop dreaming about it. You know, one way or the other, make it a reality or just shut up, yeah. you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and I went and I did a writing course and um, it was absolutely, it was just so inspirational. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever done because I turned up at this course and they just said to the group of 15 or so people, you know, write about your journey here. And most of the other people had written something before. I'd never written anything. It was it was staring at a blank page. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever done, was having to fill that page with words that somebody else would read. And then it just got easier and easier and easier. So, you know, once I'd done that writing course, I was able to kind of realize a childhood dream. So it was brilliant. It's amazing. So you'd, you'd never written anything Nothing. before? You'd not, yeah. No creative writing? Zero. No, I mean, basically in school, you know, when you write, well, I was educated in Ireland. It's a little bit different because we do that like the Scottish system where, you know, I was still doing English up to leaving cert or A-level. So you write, that's the last time I wrote anything, you know, for my leaving cert essay or my Shakespeare for the leaving cert at the age of 17. And then a, a big hiatus in writing from 17 until sometime in my 30s. And then basically... And then suddenly I realized, actually, what I had read, that's probably more, more vital, is that I might not have written anything, but I'd read a lot of stuff. Okay. And I think that that's, that bridged the gap. And so I didn't just go from no books to writing a book. I went from reading voraciously to writing a book. So are you a big literature nerd then? Who's, uh, who's some, of the, some of the works that you really um, oh, enjoyed? Oh, you know, I absolutely love Julian Barnes. Um, I absolutely love Peter Carey. Um, I now love a lot of Irish writers like Kevin Barry. I really love Irish writers at the moment. They really speak my language quite literally. You know, they speak the way I speak it from my Irish heritage. Um, but I love good literature. Um, I know I write in a completely different field, but at some point in the future, maybe I'll 
branch out, but I wouldn't I wouldn't pretend to think I can do it as well as those people, but I'd love to just work with pure imagination at some point. Oh, that would be amazing. I'd yeah. love to read that. Well, you'd be the one person buying it, perhaps. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I'll tell that to the publisher when they're buying it. I've got one buyer. <laughs> I'm happy to, happy to try yeah. anything. Um, do you, I mean, do you feel like, um, so once you kind of got going, did it feel like this whole kind of world had been building oh. ahead and it just kind of has been easy or has um, it been hard? Well, I hate to say that it hasn't, it hasn't been hard. I feel like, again, I'm kind of going against what I should say. Yes, it was it hard. It, wasn't, it was surprisingly not hard. I suppose probably the thing that wasn't is that I've been listening st to stories since the day I became a doctor because that's all you do with patients. I'm a clinical doctor. I just see patients all the time and they're constantly telling me stories and they often unfold in the same way a book does. You know, I meet someone for the first time and they tell me a bit of their story, but they hold a bit back and then you meet them a few times and it's slowly unfolding. So I think I just took the stories and I told them how they had been told to me so it didn't turn out to be as difficult as I think it should have been, but uh, it's changed my life and I'm very appreciative for it. And have there been any kind of stories in particular? I mean, I, I know you've gone in, in certain directions with your writing, yeah. but that have sparked like real lifelong kind of passions for you, either in or outside of work. Well, I think it's with my patients when I've decided to write about specific people's stories. Some stories come from the past and Therefore, the stories haven't really changed much over time. But other stories are about patients that I know at the moment. And it's, you know, I care for and I see on a regular basis. But it, it allowed me to meet them in a whole different way. You know, because I, you don't normally as a doctor have time to, you know, visit. I don't visit my patients' homes. But I found that, you know, in getting to know them in a slightly different way, I visited their homes and of some of them and learned you know, different aspects of them and a lot more about their interests. As a doctor, it's a luxury to be able to say to someone, what are your interests? You know, so it allowed me to get to know my patients in a slightly different way, which was um, eye-opening as well. It feels so much so a lot of these days with kind of medical care that you're not kind of thought of as one whole being. No, totally. It's, it's so what this tiny bit of you. Uh, you know. And that's a real failure for medicine now because it literally is sort of someone can come to me and say, you know, they've got a headache. That's fine. You're allowed to come to me with a headache. But if they then say they also have a knee pain, it's pretty much like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't do knees. Go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. But the problem is that it's entirely possible that knee and head thing are connected. Mm -hmm. And there's no one, very few people now to connect those stories. So I think when I trained as a doctor, the people who trained me were much more generalists. They covered everything. Um, and I, I think it's a, it's a lot of good medicine has been lost by us being so specific. On the other hand, you can't know everything. So something is gained also by the fact that one person only has to, to know about one thing, you know, so there's plus and minuses. And um, what do you do then when you're trying to kind of unwind yeah. and switch off at the end of the day? Um, I go to the movies for sure. Yeah, I absolutely love going to the movies. I love reading, but that's slightly now been coloured slightly by, by writing because you're constantly kind of saying, what will I read to inform my writing? And then, you know, you're, you're potentially risking turning reading into a chore. But um, I'd love to write a movie sometime. But, uh, if, well, let's just say that's never going to happen. But, <laughs> but that's my greatest you know, um, kind of relaxing thing uh, yeah. when I'm at home it is going to the movies. I'm addicted, yeah. I love that. I feel like your whole, your whole life, it sounds like, is through the lens of storytelling. 
Yeah, well, I absolutely, you know, and that's why I quite like to write just a story story as opposed to just about my patients because, you know, I, I absolutely love stories and I love the type of stories where you're longing to get to the end, where you're kind of thinking, oh, what happens, what happens? Um, and, you know, I'd love to write one of those stories sometimes. And do you think, um, uh, sort of, in general, that, that people are very good at sort of doing nothing and relaxing? Does that kind of feature in any of the sort of work that you've seen? Gosh, I, I'd imagine lots of people are great at sit, sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> I think it's very easy to do that. I don't have time to do that. I think people are different. and But I think you need that time. I don't think I can speak for other people. I think that um, my own doing nothing time is slightly limited because I work full time for the NHS and then I write and I come to festivals. Although I don't consider festivals work, I consider them to be sort of, you know, a treat. At the end of a book, someone treats you by allowing you to go to a festival. But uh, I think, uh, you know, everyone's different in that regard, but doing nothing is important. And sitting down and watching, hey, listen, I'm no, um, I've nothing, I'm really looking forward to Love Island coming out soon. That will be my sort of like doing nothing. Well, as soon as that sorts again, then you can be guaranteed one hour a day, I'll do nothing, watching Love Island and then being outraged for most of it. Yeah. And then maybe, you know, WhatsApping my friends with the horror of it. I did. Yeah. I did. I managed to get my parents to watch it last year for the first time. And it was more for my own amusement. It was, it was like a double layer. I was like now watching Love Island, which I am obsessed with. And then I think I'm the only Hay Festival employee who really brings the tone down at the lunch table. <laughs> what's going on? But uh, then I was watching my parents watch it yeah. and they were just so horrified but did they get into it because i believe if yes. you make anyone watch it they'll get into you do, it once you know the people yeah, and that, exactly. so my mum this is in the middle of covid it was last summer i think and mum and i then were messaged and we've been to london we were told we had to isolate because we've been near someone so that was it we sat in a shed yeah. in the garden for <laughs> 10 days and we watched we caught up on all of it yeah and she'd brilliant. been so disgusted by it and then by the end of it she was I like know. what what I honestly, with Chloe, what? <laughs> it was so good. I know. I honestly believe anyone would. Get, everyone looks down their nose at it, but I honestly believe that anyone who watches it, I challenge them not to be drawn slowly into it. Basically, but yeah, that's a good downtime. Oh, it's I fascinating. Think, yeah. I'm really happy that you have endorsed that for me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell everyone at lunch now. Susanna Sullivan likes Island, so it's highbrow. <laughs> So when you're writing, do you have any kind of routines or anything? Oh, it, yeah, so totally. you like this block or? Um, no, I have got really, I think you have to have, and this is my belief, you have to have kind of psychological tricks that allow you, because at the beginning of a book, you have to write, you know, something like 70 or 80,000 words. And when you're writing your first word, that just seems like monumental. So what I do is I say, write 300 words every day and basically just religiously write that every day, whatever happens. And 300 words for me, it's such a small amount. It, it doesn't take long at all. So when you're sitting down, you can do it in a lunchtime and it doesn't feel like something really, really onerous. And if you write 400 words, you think you're amazing. Mm -hmm. and, you know, so on a good, you'll always achieve your goal. You'll usually go over your goal a little bit, which kind of gives you that buzz of, wow, like I'm really making progress. And 300 words sounds like nothing, but if you add them together, you know, in six months you'll have a book. Mm. I think, again, these are just my sort of feelings about writing. I fear that some people who don't finish make the goals too big. They say, I'll write the whole first chapter this weekend, you know, and that's just so tough to do. So I suggest that people 
make small realistic daily goals and write every day something that doesn't feel terrifyingly um, sort of intimidating. And well, that certainly it works for me. It's that cohesion, isn't it, as well? Because I mean, mm. it, um, when you're when you're writing a book, you probably feel like it needs to feel really mm. cohesive, and yet yeah. actually people will pick up your book and read a bit of it and then go to bed. Yeah. And it might take them a week, it might take them yeah. months, it might, they might take yeah. them years. So yeah. it's kind of, it must be really weird trying to cater yeah. to that Well, timing. you know, I think don't, don't, you have to also not think about the reader because if you're thinking about the reader, I could, I could have like my colleagues on one shoulder going, it can't say that or, you know, and you've got, you know, patients on the other shoulder saying, they, you know, we want you to say that and, you know, you can be really stymied by worrying about your readers. I think the thing is, you know what you want to say and you need to say it. And you can say it kindly. You don't have to, you know, I, I never want to be mean or deliberately inflammatory in any way. But I think you have to not worry about who's reading your book or you'll never write a word from the anxiety of it, or at least that's my opinion. So for me, I'm just writing for what I personally achieve on that day. And if, if I worry about everyone else, I'd never write any. I hate to bring up the C word and go back to COVID. Okay. Um, but um, I'm just wondering whether, because you, you do a lot of work on psychosomatic mm. disorders, are there any kind of inklings or clues into links between the repercussions of COVID on mm -hmm. people in, in that area? I mean, it's very, very hard not to put together long COVID and psychosomatic symptoms. I mean, there are clearly people who've been in intensive care and have had end organ damage from COVID will have long-term symptoms. And that's one way that you can have a sort of long COVID or a, a lasting syndrome or people who've been very severely affected by the virus can have lasting symptoms related to it. It would be absolutely against all human nature, however, to think that there are not a group of people out there who have developed sort of physical symptoms from the sort of anxiety that we've been through because it's exactly the sort of thing that produces psychosomatic symptoms. I mean, what produces them is that somebody says to you, pay undue attention to your body, um, be in an anxiety. So you're in an anxiety provoking situation. The first thing happens when you're anxious, your heart rate goes up, you sweat, your breathing changes, so your body's changing. Now you're told to stay at home, you're, you're less active, you're eating different foods, so your body is changing in another way. And now you've got the government on the um, television telling you every day, search your body for symptoms, search your body for symptoms. So suddenly you're paying attention to your body in a way you would never. And the absolute inevitability of that is you will notice things you never noticed before. And there's no way that I'm the only person at the beginning of the pandemic who um, thought I had a temperature every day, had to buy a thermometer, because I uh, so rarely take my temperature and um, every time I took it, I didn't have a temperature and I check again the next day, was certain I had it this time and I still didn't have a temperature because all these sort of bodily changes and this intense attention to my body was making me misread the signals. Unfortunately, I got over that anxiety and stopped thinking, stopped paying attention. Um, but I'm sure that not everyone found it easy to do that and it is inevitable therefore that people will have symptoms that are more related to the experience and the social change we've been through than due to the virus themselves. But I think that's difficult for people to recognize because people consider that to mean their symptoms aren't real. I believe these symptoms are completely real and disabling. 
unfortunately, as soon as you start calling something psychosomatic, people think that that means you don't believe them. I absolutely do believe them, but human nature says that there are people out there who've developed physical symptoms through the anxiety we've been through because that's what the body does. Mm. Amazing. I'm sure there's going to be lots to read about that mm, yeah. over the coming years, yeah. research papers. Um, have you got any hobbies or interests or anything on a bucket list that you're coming to next? Bucket list? My bucket list is definitely write a novel. Mm. So that's the, um, when will I get to that? Who knows? I don't have any specific idea. That's huge bucket <laughs> list for sure. Um, I think that's the only thing that I really long to do. Um, that you know apart from reading cinema things like that i love traveling but i bought you know and it was wonderful for this book that you know just as a byproduct of the book i got to go to kazakhstan colombia you know places in the u.s that i wouldn't normally go as a tourist and i got to visit them with um in local interpreters who not only interpreted the language they also interpreted the culture for me and i have to say that's that changes the face of traveling you know to have someone who understands what's happening around you so um i'd love to write another book that involved that amount of travel <laughs> possibly the bahamas this time though yeah. instead of kazakhstan you'll have to go uh, exotic <laughs> yeah. disease searching yeah, exactly but only in tropical countries with beaches yeah, 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 possibly. <laughs> so yeah, no, um, but yeah, no, that was a lovely byproduct of this book. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. We'll be back next Friday talking to the legendary Alan Titchmarsh about early gardening memories, Nelson Mandela's tomato plants and daily routines. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to give it a rating or share it with a friend. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Xabier Najaro Echanith. We will see you next time.